So if you ask me what the best albums of the 2000s are, I would definitely mention the Postal Service's Give Up, that album from 2003. Yes, it was that long ago, 2003. And one thing I really love about it is that there's a song about writing. There's a song about the creative process. It's called Clark Gable. And at first, it doesn't sound like that's what it's about. And maybe you could disagree with me and say, no, 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 no. it's about some guy who like went out and filmed a movie with his ex-girlfriend to try to make it look like they were still together. But here's here's the chorus. Okay, so that line sticks with me, and I want life in every word to the extent that it's absurd. And what I like about that line is it makes me go back and think about the whole song and say, well, wait a minute, this isn't about every word. He's making a, a movie. What, what does this have to do with writing it? And it makes me start thinking about, okay, in what way is my creative process something like the path that this narrator is on, where he has to try to figure out how can he create a sense of reality and life and power for his audience, even when that life and power doesn't feel like it's in him anymore when the relationship that he's even writing about or singing about or making a movie about is no longer there. Okay, I bring that up because I think when I think about writing in the big picture, right, like any kind of writing, I think that often there's that sense of how am I creating a persona for my audience and how am I and how am I crafting my words, assuming we're talking about words right now, right? Um, how am I crafting my words in a way that's going to be so effective and life-giving and powerful for them? Um, I also mention that because when I tell people that I'm a writing professor, I often get the question, oh, oh are you like a fiction writer? Are you like a poet? And I, then I have to kind of get into the, well, you know, it's it's kind of, it's it's rhetoric. It's uh, academic writing. It's it's uh, digital writing. Sometimes it's professional writing. And sometimes, yeah, 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 it, it is creative writing. I do teach intro to creative writing. I do teach um, creative nonfiction and um i often get these kind of blank stares in response and and i guess what i what i'm thinking about here is in some ways my disciplinary home in rhetoric is very different than my heart which sometimes goes more towards the creative writing creative nonfiction world and yet what i want to talk about today today's program is all about the intersections it's all about the way that we want life in every word to the extent that it's absurd in our rhetorical work, in our teaching, and in our creative writing, especially if we're people who uh, go between those worlds like I sometimes do, but even if we're not. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy, Episode 11, Composing Creatively. I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University. So what I want to do is focus this discussion by specifically talking about a recent book. It's called Creative Composition, Inspiration and Techniques for Writing Instruction. No, notice it said writing instruction, right? It didn't say like creative writing or, or like rhetorical, you know, first year composition. Um, it's an edited collection edited by Danita Berg and Lori A. May. So the way I want to focus today's episode is first by starting out with a conversation with one of those editors, Danita Berg. Uh, we went to grad school together, and she, uh, even more than me, straddles those two worlds. She'll talk about that a little bit in our interview. 
And then I want to play for you some recordings by three of the people who actually have essays in that collection, sometimes reading straight from it and sometimes um, elaborating and adding on a little bit of what they said. The, the big picture here, though, remains the same. What are the intersections between what I do in my composition world and my creative writing world? First, I want to start with my interview with Danita Berg, who's the English department chair at Full Sail University, where she directs the campus and online instruction of composition, creative writing, technical writing, professional writing, and public speaking. Yes, she has her hand in a lot of different hats there. She was also assistant professor of writing at Oklahoma City University, where she directed the Red Earth Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing program. Um, She's published creative work. She's also published scholarly work. Exciting stuff. Let's hear from Danita. MFA is from Goddard College, which is a very untraditional liberal arts college. And my PhD work is, as you know, from um, the University of South Florida, which is where I studied RETCOM. And um, I did those degrees in tandem because I'm crazy. No, it was because um, <laughs> I wanted to compare the two types of education and also how they taught. Mm. Um, and then doing something in creative writing and then also doing something in retcon that really gave me an opportunity to um, compare how people talked about writing and why they talked about it that way. Right now we have two completely different conferences for writing. Well, we have several, but if yeah. you want to know about creative writing, you go to AWP. If you want to learn about teaching, and you know rhetoric and the traditional you go to four c's or something along those lines and there are those little trickles where people talk a little bit about the other um, thing but i don't think that there should be an other and i think it's kind of odd that you know they don't meet because especially now where we're teaching and most people are, are expected to be generalists there aren't too many positions anymore we're like well you're just going to teach fiction unless you're at a large public university but even then they ask you to teach other things and yeah. um i would for one you know i probably am better at creative writing i'm more comfortable in it but i still want to write academically and so i didn't think it was fair to ask me to choose and i know not everybody does mm-hmm. so and uh, my friends at Goddard, some of them were teaching, but they were teaching adjunct or they were interested in teaching, but they had their MFA and um, Goddard had a teaching component, but it wasn't the same as having a true class devoted to pedagogy. And um, so when they were leaving with their MFAs, a lot of them wanted to teach and what was available to them, because they were finding, of course, the job market's very saturated, um, were comp classes. And they're like, well, how do you teach that? And I'm like, well, <laughs> you need to take a few classes and then here's everything I've read. And I felt for them because, you know, they wanted to teach writing. But as with all things, you can do something, but it doesn't mean that you can teach it well. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of who the book was for, although it was also for people like you who, you know, might be trained more traditionally in rec comp. But they say, hey, can you teach a creative writing class? And you're like, oh, what is that? (laughs) And having taken so many different ones, um, I began to appreciate and sometimes not appreciate the different approaches 
to writing um, in class, I thought that composition did a better job of breaking down the creative process. Um, and in creative writing, they're like, well, here's a piece of creative writing, get inspired by it. Now you go try it and we'll bring it back and we'll let you know if it's any good, which um, I think is disheartening. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you, you know, it's one thing to have a work broken down. You're like, Here, here's a thesis and here's how you create a paragraph. And then somebody else go, oh, isn't this piece of work inspiring? Go try to do it yourself. Oh, you didn't do it well. Oh, but your classmate did. So good for that person. You're like, I'm not learning how to do this and I'm feeling discouraged. So I started taking the things that I learned um, in my composition class and how to break down writing. Um, and started doing that, you know, not just with craft elements, but like, well, look at the story and look at how it shows theme as opposed to creates a thesis and supports it. And um, that's kind of where creative composition took off. And, and again, I'm not, I feel like I'm so outside of this conversation. And yet I feel like I've heard people talking kind of like this on and off for a while. I know I know the introduction of the book, you you um, mentioned Wendy Bishop, who I always think of as kind of this composition person who's who's making some of these claims. I think of right. um, so some of Doug Hesse's work on creative nonfiction. I um, I know you've you've done work before on in this world. I know mm-hmm. Joe Moxley has. Uh, so, but it, it seems like what? But we still needed this new book. And so, so give me, give me the defense. Maybe I'm being too rhetoric here. Give me the defense of why, well, oh. what is this new book still? <laughs> because, because I think, and, and I'm being devil's advocate. I mean, I think, I think no, we, cool. we need it, but why, why do we need it right now? Because um, everybody kept saying, we need, we need to do this. We need to cross the lines. And um, there were trickles, Wendy Bishop being one of them, um, Stephanie Vanderslice, Anna Leahy, a lot of different, um, Sonia Huber were people who are beginning that conversation but nobody did it. Nobody, exactly. you know, crossed those darn lines. And I'm like, can we, you know, let's find out. So we put out a call and I'm like, let's see if you, people can talk about social constructivism with creative writing bent. And let's see if you can talk about argumentation and analyze a short story. And lo and behold, you can. <laughs> and so, <laughs> And um, so I'm proud of not just because the contributors did such a good job of it. For instance, somebody talking creatively about how to teach grammar. I'm like, gosh, that's amazing because that's the most dull thing in the world to teach grammar. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he's like, well, here's how I approach it creatively. I'm like, yes. And so yes. I think that gives the creative writers and the compositionists a chance to really see those lines start to um, cross or be crossed. So is there, is there like a, where does the split come from? And again, I know in, in your introduction, you talk a little about, uh, you, you quote someone who's, who's talking about uh, composition and creative writing kind of versus literature. I mean, is there, is there like this historical, um, we're all kind of against each other and don't understand each other in English departments thing? Or like why, why do creative writing classes do teach writing so differently? And even as they sometimes say that, that we can't teach writing, right? Yeah, and um, there are some, I've, I've studied the history, I'm not as well-versed as some people who can talk about it far more eloquently than I sure. can. But um, I think that there became a split when creative writing became a profitable business for higher education. And so they're like, well, who can teach this? And they started bringing in, oh, well, this author wrote a book, so he probably knows 
what he's doing. Let's have him come in and do workshops. And um, some authors, uh, this was one of my conundrums when I was teaching. I'm like, well, you're a wonderful writer, but you're not teaching me how to write because nobody's taught you how to teach. I've totally had that before. <laughs> yes. And that's very disheartening. And I noticed that um, everywhere I, you know, went, there were some people like, um, at Eckert, Sterling Watson is an amazing teacher. Uh, Rita Ceresi at UCF, amazing teacher. Um, at Goddard, I had a, a couple few that were really able to break down that process for me well. And then I had others, you could tell, just really hadn't studied pedagogy much. And they're like, well, we'll just talk about those drafts. And they could be fairly vicious about it. And I'm like, well, I think you're stopping the creative process when you're discouraging the person from expression, even if it's rough. I think I'm going off on a tangent. Oh, no. Am I answering your question? But, oh, yeah. well, you're talking about the yeah. history. Yeah, you're talking about the history. So um, well, I, asked, I asked a ridiculously large question. Like, why Why are things like this? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Notes. And so everybody got into the little camps and the creative writers are like, well, you know, we don't want to, they didn't want to teach composition because they were creatives. And plus, perhaps some of them didn't know how to teach composition. And um, I find the composition is a little bit more theory-based and maybe perhaps a little bit more dry. That's okay. Not all of them. Um, so maybe they had a tough time having a conversation with the creatives. Although um, I'm not the only person who I, I say that I, you know, I'm two-brained. I use both the left and the right side of my brain. I function perfectly well in society as a creative person. Right. <laughs> you know, and um, one of my counterparts at Full Sail, for, um, for example, John King, he has his MFA from New York University and his PhD in comp from Purdue. And delightfully intelligent and creative person. So I think we see more scholars starting to cross those lines anyway. And um, there is that feeling of discomfort for those people who are like, well, I just thought all I would ever do is teach fiction. So, you know, what? and they want to hold on to that camp. And I, I know that some colleges, for instance, like they will move literature and creative writing completely away from composition and become their own departments and um, I don't get it. That was Danita Berg, co-editor of Creative Composition, Inspiration and Techniques for Writing Instruction, co-edited with Lori A. May. And as I promised, I now want to hear the first of three of the contributors to that volume. First, we'll hear from Denise Landrum Geyer. She's Associate Professor and Writing Center Coordinator at Southwestern Oklahoma State University. You can contact her or learn about some of her other projects at denise.lg.com. I'm starting with her piece because her exploration of the essay is one of the most obvious connections between creative writing and composition studies. Obviously, we use the word essay a lot. And if you were at the 2015 Four Cs, you might have heard Adam Biggs declaring that the essay can be promoted to emeritus status, something that Denise responds to at the end of her reading here. Here's Denise Landrum Geyer. In the Oxford English Dictionary, essay has two entries one a noun, and the other a verb. The noun definition is one often associated with academic writing. A composition of moderate length on any particular subject or branch of subject, set of a composition more or less elaborate in style, though limited in range. I am more interested in the verb entry. 
to essay is to put to the proof, try, a person or thing, to test the nature, excellence, fitness of, to practice, an art, by way of trial, to try by tasting, to try to do, affect, accomplish, or make anything difficult. In Reality Hunger, a manifesto, David Shields points out the Latin antecedent to the term essay, experior, meaning to try, test, experience, prove. The verb definition of essay is an active process, one that values experimenting and working through ideas without necessarily arriving at a definitive conclusion. The emphasis is on doing, trying, testing, even if the attempt fails or leads down an unintended path. What would happen in our writing classrooms if we treated the word essay as a verb instead of a noun? What if we encouraged student essaying? I walk to and from campus almost every day, barring bad weather or the necessary toting of heavy objects. As I walk the three blocks to my office, my mind often turns to teaching. On the way to campus, I think about lesson plans for the day, revising them in my mind as music is pumped into my ears. On my way home at the end of the day, I reflect. What went well? What not so much? How will this experience feed into the next class period I have with these students? The act of walking allows me to catch my breath and work through my thoughts. I am essaying about teaching, journeying, trying, reflecting each day. And it is that act of essaying I hope to pass on to my students in first-year composition, creative nonfiction, peer tutoring, fundamentals of English, our basic writing course, really any class they have with me or someone else. I want my students to essay, even as they frown when they are told to create an essay. If we focus on the act of essaying, of exploring a topic and journeying through the composing process, rather than focusing on the resulting object known as the essay, I believe the essay can become a useful genre to teach in a variety of writing courses. Essaying allows instructors and students to reconsider how and why they compose texts. Focusing on essaying as a verb provides a venue through which student writers can not only explore unfamiliar topics, but also become more aware of how they function as writers. The resulting discussions of process can be especially useful when discussing multimodal texts and the multiple literacies our students bring to the classroom. If writing assignments focused on the act of essaying, though, students could then show their work, as they are often asked to do in math classes, because what happened to the writer isn't what matters. What matters is the larger sense that the writer is able to make of what happened, at least according to David Shields. What's more, using essays as a space to work through contradictions also provides instructors a site from which to encourage discussions of invention, process, and the chaotic nature of writing, which can help students better understand how they create texts in a variety of rhetorical situations for a variety of forms. As one of my students said after taking an essay writing class with me, writing is a process. You learn that biking. You learn how to ride a bike. You learn how, you know, and you learn how to bake a cake. But I never really saw writing as a process. Yeah, I saw it as drafts and editing, that sort of thing. 
but it's a lot more than just drafting. From start to finish, it's a process, and it's a constant process. And just recently, I learned that reading is a process. Comprehension is a process. I had no idea. And so, you know, the entire world's a process. In a February 2013 opinion column for the New York Times, Philip Lopate explores the benefits of essay writing as a mode of thinking through the world around us. The column, titled The Essay and Exercise in Doubt, is short but clear. At bottom, writes Lopate, we are deeply unsure and divided, and the essay feasts on doubt. Lopate goes on to explain, while channeling Theodore Adorno, the essay's job is to track consciousness. If you are fully aware of your mind, you will find your thoughts doubling back, registering little peeps of ambivalence or disbelief. It's the awareness of process that I find most important as a teacher. Historically, the essay has been seen as a genre that invites writers to write about writing. The power of essay writing goes beyond writing about writing, though. Essaying is a process in and of itself. It's a way of thinking that allows the writer to see his or her progress slash process, which can be, as a student once told me, a critical epiphany for students who have not thought about their processes before. Sometimes I worry that I'm falling into the long denigrated navel-gazing that is often associated with personal essay writing, and I grow concerned that I am encouraging that same potential for narcissism in my students. So what if my student can create an engaging essay about his final football game? What does that matter when it comes to living life as an engaged, responsible citizen? These questions, concerns, worries are my essays as I journey along, reconsidering my pedagogical choices. I can only hope that my essaying about my teaching will model a framework for thinking to my students. Because a final football game can have larger significance, believe it or not, if investigated from as many angles as possible. If, that is, the writer essays while composing his essay. I don't mean to suggest that the essay is the only thing we should be teaching in a composition classroom. There are many genres that students should experience in academic settings, and the number of genres grows daily as our ways of communicating with each other morph and change. I do believe that essays should be a genre that we reconsider in the classroom. Often, when a teacher tells a student to write an essay, he or she is really asking for a specialized subgenre, the academic essay. Occasionally, the teacher is asking for that age-old classroom genre, the theme. Very rarely do instructors ask students to create essays of the sort that actually live and breathe outside of classroom walls. The essay is, in fact, an organic genre, one that sprang from a need centuries ago, and one that has managed to stick around by adapting and evolving alongside its surroundings. When we misname the genre we ask students to create, we risk cutting off the natural progress of that form. Despite the misuse of the word essay in classrooms since the 19th century, though, actual essays, in all their wandering glory, have managed to continue on, pushing their way through, often under the radar of writers and educators. Essays haven't gone anywhere, despite our best efforts, and despite news to the contrary, because the life of an essay depends on the act of essaying, and we need to embrace that act in the classroom in order to help our students better understand the who, what, when, where, why, and how of their writings. 
That's part of my chapter called On Essaying from the collection Creative Composition, Inspiration and Techniques for Writing Instruction. And that book came out earlier this year, and it's pretty good timing. My On Essaying chapter, I think, is is an interesting response to something Adam Banks said in his chair's address at the 2015 Four Seas Conference in Tampa. Banks suggested that the genre be considered a genre emeritus. And my chapter on essaying is really a response to that, suggesting that, yes, the idea of an essay as an object maybe needs to be retired, but we shouldn't ignore the act of essaying with our students. It can be productive and useful in the classroom. That was Denise Landrum-Geyer. Next, we'll hear from Anna Leahy, who co-writes the Lofty Ambitions blog at loftyambitions.wordpress.com. Her book, Constituents of Matter, won the WIC Poetry Prize, and she's the editor of Power and Identity in the Creative Writing Classroom, which actually launched the new Writing Viewpoint series of which creative composition is a part. Here's Anna Leahy. I'm Anna Leahy, and I direct the Office of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity at Chapman University where I also teach in the MFA and BFA programs in creative writing, curate the Tabula Poetica reading series, and edit the International Poetry Journal tab. I contributed the chapter entitled In It for the Long Haul, The Pedagogy of Perseverance to the collection Creative Composition. I'll read the first couple of pages from that chapter and then make brief additional remarks. Recently, I talked with my fiction writing colleague Jim Blaylock about what it takes to be a writer. Beginning a semester, we saw great potential in our students, but agreed that we couldn't predict which students would do well over the course of the semester, let alone over the course of a career. As a student, I'd never felt I was the best writer among my peers, but I still am writing, I said. He replied, writing means doing the work. That comment reminded me of something another colleague, fiction writer Richard Bausch, had written. The thing that separates the amateur writer from the professional, often enough, is simply the amount of time spent working the craft. You know that if you really want to write, if you hope to produce something that will stand up to the winds of criticism and scrutiny of strangers, you're going to have to work harder than you ever have worked on anything in your life, hour upon hour upon hour. My colleague and I concluded that perseverance is at least as important as talent for the long haul of a writing career. Then we each headed home to write. I also wondered at the time whether writing in more than one genre has helped me sustain the effort over time or divided my focus, whether variety has made it easier to do the work and helped me gain perspective on craft, even though MFA programs and individual creative writing courses often encourage focus on a single genre. Within days of that encounter, I read an interview of Tracy Kidder and his editor Richard Todd. Kidder says, There were a lot of people who had more interesting lives than I had, people who were smarter and quite possibly more talented. I thought, I'm just going to work as hard as I can and make up for whatever deficiencies I have in that way. Todd adds, this reliance on talent is deadly in any field. Musicians practice, that's the only way they get good. Malcolm Gladwell, in Outliers, offers an overview of this relationship between talent and perseverance, also using musicians as the example. Referring to a study by Kay Anders Erickson et al., Gladwell writes, the students, violinists, who would end up the best in their class began to practice more than anyone else. In fact, by the age of 20, the elite performers had totaled 10,000 hours of practice. All violinists in this study had started playing when they were five years old, but by age nine, some practiced more than others, and those who practiced more became significantly better over time. 
Among violinists and pianists, the Erickson study couldn't find any natural musicians who floated effortlessly to the top while practicing a fraction of the time their peers did. So sticking with a specific endeavor over time matters. Psychologist Angela Duckworth calls this grit after the girl in the film True Grit. In her TED Talk, Duckworth says, There is no domain of expertise that has been studied where the world-class performers have put in fewer than 10 years of consistent, deliberate practice to get where they are. Capacities like grit allow us to take advantage of our talent. We all know many, many extremely bright people who don't have the capacity to stay on tasks towards one goal. In her talk, she repeats eventually, emphasizing the long haul necessary for the creative process. In his book, Where Good Ideas Come From, Stephen Johnson shows that although Charles Darwin felt as if his theory of evolution at once struck, it actually arose over a long period of observation and documentation. Creative insight often emerges from what Johnson calls the slow hunch. He writes, Sustaining the slow hunch is less a matter of perspiration than of cultivation. You give the hunch enough nourishment to keep it growing and plant it in fertile soil where its roots can make new connections, and then you give it time to bloom. Cultivation of a hunch or of a talent matters whether you are a musician or a scientist. This notion of cultivation is akin to the sort of concentration that poet Jane Hirschfield advocates in Nine Gates. By concentration, she says, I mean a particular sense of awareness, penetrating, unified, and focused, yet also permeable and open. She writes of violinists practicing scales and dancers repeating the same movements. They are learning how to attend unswervingly, moment by moment, to themselves and their art, learning to come into steady presence, free from the distractions of interest or boredom. Patience is what she means, and self-awareness. My chapter goes on to discuss several practical ways that I cultivate perseverance in my writing students, including a month-long draft-a-day private blog project and various in-class activities. It's important for me, however, to keep in mind that I don't know which of my students will go on to publish their writing. So I conclude here with the end of my chapter, which reminds us, only time will tell. Most creative writing students won't rise to the top of the field. That fact, however, makes perseverance even more important to consider when we teach. No matter what our students become, grit fosters success. And perseverance allows some of us to stick with writing and teaching for a lifetime. That was Anna Leahy. Finally, we'll hear from Sean Caravan, who teaches composition, technical writing, and creative writing at the Community College of Vermont. He has a popular blog, In Keeping Insights in Stowe, which has been featured on NPR's Away With Words. You can read it at Stowe Innkeeper. That's S-T-O-W-E innkeeper.blogspot.com. His most recent book, A Brief History of Innkeeping in the 21st Century, was published in 2014 by the Vermont Press. Here's Sean Caravan. Hello. My name is Sean Caravan, and my piece, Grammar and Creativity, an Unexpected Nexus, has appeared in the Creative Composition text, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about some of the concepts behind the piece. So I guess the first thing that I wanted to talk about was this connection between grammar itself and creativity. And I'm not talking about whether or not to choose a semicolon in place of a comma. I'm talking about sort of the concepts that lie behind the decisions that writers make. And um, I know that as a composition teacher, I see a lot of um, freshman writers who have little or no comp 
comprehension of grammar itself or what it can do for writing. So that's sort of been uh, one of my um, rally points over the years is to not just teach them grammar in a vacuum, but to teach them grammar in a relative sense so that they can understand uh, it better as a tool, not just as something abstract, but something that has meaning and history and depth and color and art and all those things that we would never normally associate with grammar um, so that they can feel like they own it and understand it and better employ it. In my freshman composition classes, um, I teach basically a four-essay cycle. I use descriptive essays to begin with, then I move to compare and contrast essays, then I move to a definition essay, and I finish up with a uh, an argument essay that has a research piece in it. And um, I find that by beginning with a descriptive essay, uh, students are better equipped to start thinking about the specific grammar that's needed for that kind of essay. By using um, descriptive elements, uh, sensory uh, elements, they are more comfortable in creating things that make a little bit of sense to them. And that's a way for me to actually access uh, their knowledge of grammar and to help them uh, become introduced to it. Um, Everything we know, we know because we got it through our senses. And understanding description definitely helps the writer connect herself to the um, to that place that creativity comes from. So in other words, writing description is an easier way to access uh, not only creativity, but to understand grammar and by uh, addressing the grammar of the writing through that creative piece. Uh, once students uh, kind of understand what the creative process is, it begins to demystify it and they can stop um, hiding behind that block that a lot of writers have. Um, we emphasize the basics. Uh, we go through parts of speech, parts of sentences, word groups, and sentence types. These things uh, are uh, ways that we can access um, uh, and connect to the writer's uh, chores or tasks. For example, when uh, they uh, are writing a compare and contrast essay, um, we can talk about larger uh, grammatical uh, issues, sort of um, meta issues with grammar, and we can also address it on a smaller sentence level um, in a more um, micro way. Um, students um, really begin to understand grammar more completely in the revision process. It's great to get them uh, to get their ideas and their thoughts down as quickly as possible, but what we're really looking for is a way to um, an opportunity to access, again, uh, the place where they can actually work on the grammar. And the revision process uh, seems to be the best place for that because they've gotten over already the the creative hurdle, uh, as it were, by working in uh, descriptive elements and then uh, compare and contrast elements. So uh, once they get to the, the revision process, we can start talking about um, things like clarity and structural approaches on a larger scale. Um, one of the things, one of the resources I've used is uh, Reflective Writing in the Revision Process by Sandra Giles. Um, and she has a great quote. She says, reflection helps you develop your intentions or your purpose uh, to figure out your relation to the audience, to uncover possible problems with the individual writing process set new goals for revision, and to make decisions about language and style. Um, these are great metacognitive techniques. Uh, I always am a firm believer that the habit of reflection 
with revision uh, will go hand in hand and uh, create a, a, a skill that writers will be able to call on um, over and over and over again. Um, in, in writing definition essays, uh, students begin to compose with an eye towards argumentation. Stipulation, limitation, narrowing the message, all these things for students uh, into a precision that requires accurate punctuation. So now we can begin to um, really hone in on manipulating and creating uh, sentences and word groups that are specific in purpose to the definition. Understanding commas, colons, semicolons, and other punctuation marks uh, combines with this explicit need of definition to form a powerful synthesis of grammar and creativity. This is a surprise for my students. They are constantly surprised at how they can use these things like punctuation to create meaning. And that's when the real nexus occurs. Finally, uh, when they get to argumentation, students are able to assemble things acquired during the the entire semester into a single voice. The compositional elements required for effective argument incorporate the facets of essay already covered earlier. Explorations are formalized through their research, and then this allows them to support their opinion. And uh, this approach is paralleled in grammar, which emphasizes word choice and sentence style now. Now we're talking about um, setting up a larger argument to try and convince or persuade, and they see the value of being able to handle uh, grammar and understand it on a more effective level. Uh, this great confluence of composition and grammar and uh, creativity is always uh, an exciting thing to see emerge in students during the course of the semester. And by thinking about different grammatical elements and how they relate to different uh, rhetorical approaches to writing, uh, instructors can tailor their own lesson plans and classes uh, to the strengths and weaknesses of their of their own students and themselves too. So I hope that folks read this piece and get some ideas for their own classes and how they can think about grammar not as uh, something that's dead and lifeless and just needs to be uh, gotten through, but as a tool to enhance creativity and to clarify meaning and to uh, help students navigate through the rhetorical writing process. Thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege uh, talking to you today. That was Sean Caravan. And with that, we're at the end of the episode. I would love to hear your thoughts, especially if you are using any of these ideas in your class, if you think any of this connection between the discipline stuff is bunk, or if you super love it and want to see more of it, talk to me. I'm on Twitter at KStedman, or you can always email me at plugsplaypedagogy at writingcomments.org special thanks to my guests for sharing their ideas and work with me and also thanks to everyone else who contributed to that collection and of course all the other people who find interesting ways to use style and craft in their scholarship all the time for goodness sakes let's have more of that at the beginning of this episode, you heard a clip from the Postal Service. You also heard my theme song from Cactus May. Every other piece of music after that is from Overclocked Remix. That's ocremix.org, where you can get all the free video game music remixes you can handle. In my show notes, you'll get links to the exact pieces that I used. 
This show, by the way, is licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial 4.0 international license, which means that you can distribute it for free legally as long as you give me some credit and you don't make any money off of it. I also hope that you're listening to the other awesome podcasts available at the Facebook group Podcasts in Rhetoric and Composition. Um, I almost I almost wanted to call it a network there, you know, like like the network of podcasts and rhetoric and composition, but it's really just a Facebook page. But I don't know, it's kind of a network too, right? So let's let's do it. I'm I'm part of the podcast and rhetoric and composition network, at which you can, you know, just go listen. Okay, I'm Kyle Stedman. I'm recording this on the last day in September 2015 in suddenly very chilly Rockford, Illinois. The lows got down to the 40s, crazy top. But I don't know. I kind of like it. I want to eat apples and stuff. You know, this is plugs play pedagogy. <laughs>